You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. I have with me in the BMJ studio Tusha Kotichard, who's a cardiology specialty registrar at Charing Cross Hospital in London. Tusha, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hi. You've written a piece for us on how to investigate suspected heart failure. You've co-written this with Dr. Kevin Fox, who's also uh, at Charing Cross Hospital and a cardiologist there. It is an area where some of the investigations have changed quite a bit in the last few years, and uh, it would be helpful to take us through the steps. Let's kick off with a a case presentation, for instance, uh, a man in his 70s who has known COPD, having been a smoker for some years now, although he's given it up in the last couple of years. He is known to have hypertension, but not had any uh, cardiac history of note. And he comes to you as his GP with several weeks of increasing breathlessness. Now, what are the things a GP would need to look for? So firstly, breathlessness is a common presentation um, to both general practice and the emergency department. Um, And clearly the the diagnosis of heart failure can be challenging. Um, So firstly, the most important thing really in the first instance is a a thorough history um, from the patient and clinical examination. Um, So symptoms to ask about include um, breathlessness, um, orthopnea and uh, nocturnal dyspnea, as well as peripheral edema. Signs to look for in clinical examination include an elevated uh, JVP, evidence of either pulmonary edema or pleural effusions on auscultation of the chest, and obviously any evidence of peripheral edema. Now, let's say in this gentleman that um, you listen to his chest, he has some bibasal crackles, there are no other signs of heart failure, um, and you're, you're tossing up as, his, as a GP. It could be an effective exacerbation of his COPD or it could be cardiac failure, knowing that he has had a long-standing history of significant hypertension. What's the next step? How do we differentiate between the two? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the next step here is, um, so in the first instance, I would suggest that um, the general practitioner requests um, a 12-lead ECG and a chest X-ray. Um, the ECG, firstly, can be um, very useful as it can be obtained quickly, and it gives useful information about the heart rhythm and electrical conduction in the heart. Um, It may also give us clues about uh, whether there's evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy or any evidence of previous infarcts, uh, for example, the presence of Q waves. A normal 12-lead ECG makes the diagnosis of heart failure very unlikely. Uh, With regards to chest X-ray, that can give very useful information um, regarding whether there's any evidence of pulmonary edema or pleural effusions, and also to look for other causes of breathlessness, for example, uh, in this case, infection or or malignancy given the smoking history. And I guess on a chest X-ray, one might see some cardiomegaly too. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay, what other tests might the GP want to look at? Um, Let's say the ECG is a little abnormal. There's left bundle branch block, for instance. Yeah, so um, so the the next stage would be to request some blood tests. So natriuretic peptides are now coming to routine clinical use, um, and there are the two peptides that can be looked for, the first being BNP um, and the other being NT-pro-BNP. Um, and a negative value for, for either of these makes diagnosis of heart failure highly unlikely. The test used uh, would depend on, uh, on local policy. Both tests are valid and they're both um, very good at excluding heart failure if they're negative. Would you like to explain a little bit what these substances are and what they actually indicate? 
Yep, so natriuretic peptides are chemicals that are released from uh, within the heart. So what happens is with increased myocardial wall stress um, in the presence of heart failure, the heart releases these natriuretic peptides into the circulation. So in a, in a normal healthy heart, um, the levels of both of these um, peptides would be very low. Um, so the difference between the two is that BNP is the, the biologically active peptide, whereas the NT pro BNP is the the inert um, uh, inert fragments of the of the peptides, um, and the actual role of BNP in the body is that it stimulates um, natriuresis, uh, vasorelaxation, and it inhibits uh, the renin and uh, aldosterone systems. Okay, and in healthy people, levels of both are very low, isn't that right? Uh, yep, yep. So, um, so I mean, at, at cutoff values of BNP less than 35 um, picograms per mil and NT pro BNP less than 125 picograms per mil um, both have very high negative predictive values for heart failure. Okay, so they obviously has have a diagnostic role uh, in excluding heart failure, um, but they're also prognostic markers aren't they they are yeah so um so i mean the evidence suggests that um, the higher the value of these um, peptides the the worse the prognosis um, and in fact uh, the current nice guideline uh, suggests that patients with uh, bnp levels of greater than 400 or nt pro bnp levels greater than 2000 should be seen uh, by a cardiologist within two weeks because of the poor prognosis Okay, now that's quite useful to have um, threshold values like that. Now, there are pitfalls, aren't they, in interpreting BNP levels? Yeah, of course, yeah. So BNP levels, um, they, they can be modestly elevated in the absence of heart failure. Um, so, for exa- examples of uh, such causes are left ventricular hypertrophy, um, cardiac is- uh, ischemia, arrhythmias, uh, COPD, uh, renal impairment, uh, liver cirrhosis and sepsis. Um, it's also worth noting that obesity um, tends to result in a lower than expected level of uh, natriuretic peptides. Mm. Now, that's of course rather tricky because a, a fair number of our patients with cardiac failure are going to have COPD or renal failure or diabetes. Yep. How do you interpret levels if somebody has other other comorbidities. Yeah, like I mean, that. I think I think the key really here is the um, BMP is very useful as a, an exclusion tool. Um, so, as we said, the, the the levels may be elevated in the presence of comorbidities, but a negative value can be very useful at excluding heart failure. Unless they're obese. Uh, yeah, unless they're obese. Okay, and what would you do in that instance? Uh, I think I think in that situation you need to be guided by the clinical situation. So if there are other clues that suggest heart failure, um, then I think it would be reasonable to proceed and uh, consider referral to a cardiologist for further assessment. Okay. Now you've told us about the, the sort of trigger values that would make one refer to a cardiologist. Prior to that step, however, are there other basic tests that a GP might order? Yeah, so I think um, I think other basic blood tests can be very useful in this scenario. Um, <clears throat> for example, a full blood count, um, because anemia um, may provide an alternate explanation for breathlessness, um, and in addition may precipitate uh, a bout of heart failure. Um, and a raised neutrophil count may suggest that there's an infective component to, to the breathlessness. Uh, renal function in this sort of scenario really is essential because um, renal, fi- renal failure is another cause of fluid overload. Um, in addition, um, 
a high proportion of patients with heart failure have abnormal renal function, and this carries a, a worse prognosis. Um, and finally, patients with heart failure are almost always commenced on drugs such as ACE inhibitors and diuretics, um, so it's essential to get a baseline uh, renal function um, in case of further deterioration in the future. Um, liver function can be useful um, because an impaired liver function may suggest hepatic congestion from right-sided heart failure. In addition, a low albumin level may cause fluid retention and provide an alternative explanation for edema. Uh, lipid profile and uh, either a glucose level or hemoglobin uh, A1C level uh, are essential to, um, as part of a workup for um, patients with cardiovascular risk factors and obviously if they're abnormal they need treating appropriately. And finally thyroid function can be useful as uh, uh, hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism both confer um, a higher risk of developing heart failure and would require treatment in their own rights. Okay, well, that's a very useful uh, summary of the tests that might be done in, in the initial instance. Now, let's move on to what can happen post-referral. What are some of the uh, investigations that a patient might undergo once they've seen the cardiologist? The first test I'd like to talk about is echocardiography, which, which continues to be the gold standard, really, in um, confirming the diagnosis of heart failure. Um, it gives very useful information uh, on chamber volumes, uh, wall thickness, valve function, and, um, and obviously gives us information on the left ventricular systolic and diastolic function as well as the right ventricular function. Um, following this, depending on, on um, what we find, we may consider coronary angiography for these patients uh, to assess for the presence of coronary disease, which, which has been shown to be the cause of heart failure in approximately half of patients under the age of 75 and probably more um, in patients older than 75. Um, however, uh, we, we would only really consider coronary angiography um, if, we, if we felt the patient would be suitable for further intervention um, should we find any um, coronary artery disease. Uh, the other test we sometimes consider in a situation is cardiac um, MRI scanning, uh, which may be useful where uh, echocardiographic uh, images are suboptimal uh, or if the etiology of heart failure remains unclear. Um, MRI can be particularly useful when we're uh, considering inflammatory or infiltrative causes um, of heart failure. Okay, well, that's extremely useful. Um... So to summarise, in somebody with symptoms suggestive of heart failure or where heart failure might be one of the main differential diagnoses, uh, it's important to start off doing a 12-lead ECG um, and if the symptoms are primarily respiratory, uh, a chest X-ray as well. If they had, for instance, signs of uh, right ventricular failure um, without the, the chest symptoms, um, you would probably do a chest X-ray as well, wouldn't you, if you were thinking heart failure, or would you? Uh, no, I think we would, because if we're, if we're thinking only right-sided heart failure, um, then a, a common etiology is, is lung pathology, actually, um, causing core pulmonale and, and right-sided heart failure. Um, so that can provide very useful information. Um, furthermore, there, you know, there may not be, clinically, you may not be able to appreciate pulmonary edema or pleural effusions, but there, you know, there may be early signs uh, such as upper lobe diversion on the chest X-ray. Mm. Um, okay, so the, the initial test would be an ECG and a chest X-ray and BNP levels. 
um, the ECG and BNP levels are extremely useful, uh, having high negative predictive levels in excluding cardiac failure. And there are uh, specific guidelines for when to refer to a cardiologist given the BNP levels. Um, However, you rightly point out that echocardiography remains the gold standard in diagnosis of heart failure. Tushar, is there anything you'd like to add to what we've already discussed? Um, I think the only thing I'd like to add is the the only caveat to this scenario really is is patients who've had previous myocardial infarction. um, And in this scenario, if they present with symptoms suggestive of heart failure, then they should be referred directly for echocardiography um, regardless of their uh, BNP levels. Okay, that's a really good point. Now, I don't think this is a point you you bring out strongly in your paper, but we are now becoming increasingly aware of the entity of diastolic, so-called diastolic heart failure. I wonder if you'd like to comment on that and the initial uh, testing for that. So diastolic heart failure um, for many years has been notoriously difficult to, uh, to diagnose accurately. Um, essentially, the, the initial investigations in, in primary care remain the same as for systolic heart failure in that if a patient presents with symptoms suggestive of heart failure, then um, they should have a, a 12-lead ECG, um, a chest X-ray, and measurement of BNP level. Um, and quite often we, we see patients with elevated BMP levels and clinical features of heart failure. However, their systolic function is normal on uh, echocardiography. Um, there are echocardiographic markers that, uh, that can indicate uh, diastolic heart failure, um, although they do have their limitations. Um, and essentially, if the, if, if the patient's got signs of heart failure, they have an elevated BMP, um, and we're, we're suspicious of diastolic heart failure, then we would treat them uh, as though they have heart failure. Okay, well, that's a very useful rundown on how to investigate suspected heart failure. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.